Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and serve as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we are going to dive into the world of ESG and healthy buildings with the Vice President of ESG and Investing for Health at the International Well Building Institute, Kelly Warden. Kelly has been a leader in the space, helping understand the connection between public health, our buildings, and then, of course, the emergence of ESG and how we measure those things both at the portfolio level for investors, but at the building level, so folks can demand better buildings to be working in. I really have enjoyed the conversation because of my background in this space on the federal side and the progress that this space is making is really important for for all of us. So you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me in Experts Only. Yeah, thank you for having me. Before we get into the work you're doing today and, and the effort of the organization uh, that you got, you're helping to drive, I want to hear a little bit about your, you and how you decided to get into this space. What was uh, the motivation to get into sustainability? Um, yeah, I had a bit of a roundabout path. Um, when I was going to undergrad, I applied as an environmental engineering major Um I really liked math and there wasn't much you could do with math at the time um, besides teach or engineering. Um, and I wanted to optimize systems for the betterment of the environment and people. Um, I got a bit distracted from that goal. I went to University of Texas at Austin for undergrad. And um, during orientation, I thought uh, environmental engineering sat within the civil engineering department. I thought that sounds boring, you know, learning about bridges. I like chemistry. Let me switch to chemical engineering. So I did that, um, but most people uh, studying chemical engineering, particularly at the University of Texas, want to go into oil and gas, which is exactly opposite of what I wanted to do. Uh, So I ended up uh, graduating with a bachelor's of science in biology. And uh, the one class that I took that really piqued my interest was on the sociology of health. This sort of predates um, more robust organization of the public health sector, um, but it basically was a, a public health class talking about how um, societal uh, infrastructure and neighborhood um, uh, infrastructure really correlates with health outcomes. Something that I was always really bothered by um, health disparities and the idea that um, depending on what part of town you grew up in, what kind of socioeconomic uh, status you were born into, that really um, had a high predictive level of of your long term health outcomes. Um, and so I wanted to do something about that, but I didn't really know what. A lot of people that um, were in my program of Bachelor of Science in Biology, most people want to go to medical school, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to focus on keeping people out of the healthcare system. All so right. um, I was very fortunate. My my aunt is a amazingly brilliant cardiologist who has worked for the American Heart Association for a very long time. Uh, and she, at the time, had taken a job with the World Heart Federation in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, I, uh, being a type A person who likes to plan ahead, I was pretty anxious about not having a job lined up when I graduated. Um, but that allowed me for the opportunity to actually just go intern with the World Heart Federation in um, in Geneva. Um, and at the time, they were preparing for a UN General Assembly 
meeting in 2011, um, a high-level summit on chronic disease, which was only the second time for the UN General Assembly to meet on a health issue. The first time was the HIV-AIDS summit in 2001, uh, which led to a lot of uh, global investment in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Uh, so 10 years later, they have this high-level um, meeting on chronic disease, non-communicable diseases, meaning cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, respiratory uh, illness. And the purpose of that meeting was to uh, call attention to the economic threat that chronic disease posed, especially to the global economy. Um, right. And I, I was able to help prepare for and then um, participate in that meeting. And I, I saw a lot of conversation around uh, the challenges associated with rapid urban development in uh, middle-income countries. So having these cities that were sprawling out, making a lot of the same mistakes that we made in the U.S. around um, urban design when it comes to over-dependence on cars. Uh, so there was discussion of how that was bad for the environment, but then also how it was bad for people and for health outcomes, because we know that urban sprawl and uh, and sort of unhealthy neighborhood conditions uh, increase the risk for chronic disease. And there was this amazing uh, report done by the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the Harvard School of Public Health that was the first time um, that anyone quantified the economic burden of chronic disease globally. And it was just astronomical, um, both from a um, perspective of treatment costs and then also uh, reduced productivity um, when you have a chronic illness and you're not um, able to to work and and be you know contribute to the overarching economy. So that experience gave me um, the encouragement and confidence to pursue a job uh, at this intersection of sustainable urban development and public health. Um, it wasn't a path that was very well um, mapped out. Uh, there was academic research that had been going on in the public health community for decades at that time, establishing the association between um, urban design and health, but there had not been much focus on how do we actually change the way that place, places are built um, with health in mind. And so I went to graduate school for public health. I knew I wanted to be the public health voice in the conversation, which is why I decided right. to go pursue a master's in public health. Uh, and I, I made the, um, the, I don't know, risky bet, although it wasn't that risky, but I made the intentional choice to go to graduate school in DC uh, because I, ex I suspected that it would give me greater proximity to organizations that I could learn something from when it came to right. real estate and urban development. Um, and I was very fortunate my first year of grad school to get connected with Chris Pike, who was head of research for U.S. Green Building Council at the time. Yeah. And um, I didn't know much about U.S. Green Building Council, but I, I knew what the LEED certification system was. And I suspected that I could learn something about how to influence decision making within real estate uh, in a way that worked for the private sector. Um, the timing of that meeting was really uh amazing because Chris had just what year started. what year is this approximately? so that is um in 20 fall 2012 uh is when we met and then I started working with them in spring 2013 and um, for folks who don't know Chris Chris is sort of famous in the green building space yes uh, and the work he's done at USGBC US Green Building Council yeah yes yes Yes. Um, yeah, he, uh, he he's amazing. Uh, I was able to learn so much from Chris over the many years of working with him. Um, and when we started working together in 2013, it was right when um, Chris had started partnering with um, Matt Trowbridge, who is a an professor and a, and a pediatrician by training at University of Virginia School of Medicine. They had just started this partnership with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, which is the largest public health foundation in the country. 
to basically do exactly what I wanted to do, which was look at the success of the green building movement and <clears throat> explore whether there were lessons um, that the public health sector could learn in terms of uh, translating academic research into practice tools and then also creating market incentives um, for health-oriented development. Um, at the same time, Kelly, that this was going on, I was actually uh, serving my role at the White House and working a lot with Chris and the USGBC team and figuring out how to implement lead within federal buildings. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of momentum around that concept. And then there was a lot of, uh, for a much longer conversation, a debate between Green Globes and lead and yes. what, the Fed, what the Fed should do in that space. Um, for folks that are not as familiar at this intersection, right? When you think about public health or even health in general in buildings, this isn't just about the pollution from the energy that's being put into the turning electricity. This is the actual, a lot of the chemicals in the building, a lot of the makeup of the building. Can you talk for a second about what you mean by, uh, for instance, like a healthy building or what, what, how a building could impact someone's well-being? Yeah, absolutely. That's a very good question. Um, when I started working with U.S. Green Building Council in 2013, and I, I said I wanted to do you know, focus on health. Um, oftentimes I got one of two responses. One was, oh, you mean healthcare, like healthcare buildings, right. because that was also a huge deal within green building. Like health hospitals had had resisted green building design because they said our systems are too energy intensive. There's no way we can do this. Um, and, you know, then there was um, great work done by Gail Vittori and others with the Green Guide for Healthcare that sort of kind of debunked that myth. Um, that was one reaction. Or the other reaction was, um, yeah, we do we do that. That's like what lead is all about is, you know, climate change is a problem for health. And so that's what we do. And that's true for sure. Climate change is one of the largest public health threats that we face. Um, but there are more immediate ways to have a positive impact on health through the the way that a place is built and then um, the way it's operated and, and how it performs. Uh, so as you mentioned, there was a big focus on materials, um, materials and, and many aspects of building design. It is You do have lots of different co-benefit um, moments where, especially on the materials front, if something is bad for the environment, it's usually bad for people uh, and human health as well. Um, so it's easy kind of to tackle those goals alongside one another. Um, but it was difficult because the materials industry was not transparent about what was actually in the materials. So Building sure. teams can't specify better materials if they don't know, um, you know, what uh, the different ingredients are. Um, yeah. And so that that's one example. Um, another where there are actually really nice, clean um, co-benefits on the green side is uh, things like daylight and views. We know there's there are decades of public health research over um, the positive impact of, of daylight and views of nature on our mental well-being. Um, some research within the healthcare um, setting where it actually improves healing time. And you know, that's an example of where daylight from a green building perspective, might the primary intent might be to reduce energy use of the building for lighting. Um, but you've got also the added benefit of, um, of positive social outcomes. Um, air quality and water quality, of course, um, sound comfort. And then there are other things that, that have to do more with the location of the building and proximity to active transit and green space and healthy foods, um, other things having to do with social interaction as well. Um, so lots of various ways, yeah. and, and many of which were at, at some level included in the LEED rating system and other green building systems, because green building 
um, at its origin was in response to sick building syndrome. Uh, when you closed up buildings and focused only on energy performance, that led to bad outcomes for people. Um, and this, um, you know, grouping of, of symptoms like headache and dry eye and uh, fatigue that we refer to as sick building syndrome. And so green building rating systems really were designed to have a balance towards energy performance and some of these um, health issues. That said, lead at the time, it was hard to use the rating system with health as a primary goal because health outcomes right. were sort of embedded throughout and not always explicit. Um, my first project at USGBC was doing a health review of the LEAD 2009 rating system and categorizing the different credits according to their um, health relevance. And it was, at first, it sounded like an easy task. It ended up being very, very hard um, because not only is the credit language not always clear about what the health benefit might be, but also there's a couple different scales of, of health impact within um, building design and operation. Um, and once we quantify those and are explicit about those, it's easier to sort of um, to categorize the different opportunities. But you've got impact on the building user. Um, so that'll be, you know, things like daylight, air quality, water quality, things like that. You also have impact on the surrounding community, potentially, and how you engage the community through the construction process, local hiring practices, things like green roofs that um, help with stormwater management and um, urban heat island effect. Um and then you also have the supply chain uh, that's impacted uh, in terms of exposure to um, uh, different toxic ingredients in the creation of materials. Um, and then the global community, which is where a lot of those climate change um, mitigation impacts are going to come into play when it comes to the, the health benefit. Yeah, which is more of a community additive versus the people in the building itself. Mm -hmm. So you uh, correct me as I walk through what my understanding of sort of the history of the space and I'll sort of speed through it so we can get to sort of the heart of the conversation today. Um, but, you know, the concept is, you know, in the 2000s, the, the idea of creating a more green, the concept of green building started to develop. The idea of lead was developed as a way to actually score and build out uh, uh, buildings or even on the road retrofit buildings to make them uh, a, a better impact both on the environment outside of the environment inside the building as well. And that continued to mature over time and the scorings, the scores of lead became something that you could actually measure down to an auditor going into a building and saying, it's got these 10 things, so it's a lead sober, and you can have that tag. That tag created a demand. So people wanted to start moving into buildings that were healthier. And so the, the demand for things like lead silver, even down the road, lead platinum began to create, you had Bank of America build the largest uh, skyscraper in New York City at One Bryan Park, which is a I think a lead platinum building, right? Was it, they were able to build that because there was a scorecard that allowed the architects and others to build around. As that matured, the concept that you're talking about, the health began becoming more and more um, understood, and folks started even pushing demand for that. And the concept, you know, that is now sort of the healthy building. I may be saying that term wrong, but um, you know, helped create what is now the International Well Building Institute. Right, which is almost a step above lead in terms of how you're looking or in parallel to lead how you're looking at buildings. Can you talk first and first of all, correct me where I missed anything there. But two, then can you talk a little bit about the institute? Um, yes. And that was uh I think a really accurate uh summary. And um it has been an interesting time to be engaged in this intersection because we did see health emerge as an organic interest within the real estate industry 
long before the the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, for sure. The pandemic definitely emphasized how important building design and operation is for health. Um, but as especially in certain markets where lead um, became very uh, widely used, it became harder and harder to differentiate yourself from your peers based off of lead alone and green uh, performance alone. And so that health um, aspect uh, really came into play. This is a bit within the corporate occupier space, also um, instigated by Google's approach to workplaces. Um, yeah. and kind of rethinking what the what, what the workplace looks like. Um, when I was in uh, yeah, to your uh, point. the federal side, when I was in the federal side, we met. I went and met with the Google team in in Palo Alto, and remember the 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 folks working on the um, facilities told me a story about the co-founder of Google. I think it was Sergey walk, literally walking around with a monitor, checking the uh, certain chemicals within the facilities he was in, and then calling back the facility guys asking for it to change, and then they didn't have the data to figure out how to change it, right? Which to me is where a healthy building has began to come up. I don't know if that's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 100% true, but it was told to me. <laughs> well, I will say, I know that um, Google also played a role uh, in helping accelerate progress on the materials transparency front, um, both in some grant funding that they provided to, um, to create market-oriented guides, but then also in the participation uh, in somewhat of a buyer's club in the at the USGBC Northern California chapter where a bunch of big buyers of materials came together and put pressure on the materials industry collectively to say, we're not going to buy materials from you if you don't specify what's in them, um, which is a really amazing example of, of yeah, market organization yeah. And, and its influence. Um, and a simple but, version for that for folks that don't understand, if you think about buying a cereal box and there's a label on the cereal box of what's in it, your your, your desk may have something similar explaining what, not to that simplicity, but you know what, yes. what was used in building it. Exactly. Um, but so all of that uh, led to the... The uh, International Well Building Institute, well, at the time it was Delos, um, created the Well Building Standard, uh, which they released in 2014. Um, and then soon after that, spun off the International Well Building Institute as a separate entity to, um, to maintain uh, and continue to develop the Well Standard. Um, and so the, the Well Standard is a bit, you know, it was inspired by LEED and other um, building rating systems, but it's a bit different in, in its approach. Um, so it's explicitly focused on health uh, and well-being, as is uh, indicated in the name. Um, and it's it's addressing the entirety of the building design, construction, and operation process all within the same certification. So um, within LEED, you've got that separated into two different certifications. With WELL, it's all together. Um, and on the operation side, it also brings in um, organizational policies, HR policies related to employee um employee performance as well. Uh, and so the WELL standard was launched in 2014. Um, since then, it has evolved quite a bit to become um, more flexible and easier to adapt to different use cases. Um, so I like to, simple way I would refer to the WELL standard as a certification, a health-focused certification for both organizations and places. Um, and increasingly, companies are engaging with WELL through the Well at Scale program, which allows companies to um, enroll their entire portfolio into the Well standard and then be very intentional about setting goals across their portfolio and making uh, more incremental progress towards those goals. Um, so taking an intentional lens on which specific uh, individual Well features, aka strategies, you would choose um, in a way that, that aligns with your goals. Are you seeing portfolio managers on the real estate investment side doing the same companies that sort of manage their own uh, facilities? Both. 
both. Um, so we've got um, both, you know, large corporate occupiers that are uh, that are doing this. The, the, this trend really um, took off during during the COVID nineteen pandemic, especially with the release. Um, International Well Building Institute released the Well Health Safety Rating, which was a subset of features specifically focused not only on infectious disease control, but also emergency preparedness in general. Um, so it's actually something that's going to remain relevant, especially as it relates to um, climate resilience and, and sort of preparing for more extreme events. Um, but many companies chose to deploy well the Well Health Safety Rating throughout their entire portfolio and often Sometimes these were companies that had um, retail branches that they wanted to keep open um, or, or sports facilities that wanted to be able to um, reconvene in a healthy way. Um, but then you also have real estate fund managers uh, that are um, bringing in portfolios into uh, the wealth program. Uh, within both cases, the corporate um, occupier util utilization and the real estate fund manager, we are um, seeing more companies using well within their over. ESG strategy and also using well to help inform their ESG reporting um, and really emphasizing the value of, of that third-party verification, even down to individual performance metrics um, and the value that that brings on the reporting side. Yeah, let's talk a little about that. I mean, I think as we've talked a lot on this show about the, the development of ESG and, you know, I think there's so much capital looking to go in. There's still, in many cases, a lack of uh, transparency across a lot of different portfolios of what you're looking at and what ESG really is. But you guys have now partnered with uh, with Greds. Can you talk a little bit about what that uh, what that partnership looks like? You know why that sort of real estate um, standard is something you guys uh, have really looked to help move forward, and sort of what that partnership will lead to. Yes, yeah. So Gresb, uh is the leading ESG benchmark for real assets. Um, provides an annual benchmark um, that real estate investors utilize to kind of manage and assess the, the ongoing performance of their investments. Um, Gresb has, similar to all, similar to the to green building, um, you know, green rating systems at a building scale, Gresb being at a portfolio scale, they are an ESG benchmark. So there are a lot of existing Gresb indicators that um, speak to social performance of uh, real estate portfolios. Um, some of the most robust of those and, and just indicators. So folks that are tracking as a, as a solar owner, right? We own solar assets. We, we, we are required to report under Gres, even though technically it's not, you're not thinking about buildings, right? This is something that our investors required of us uh, to report up through real assets. Which is really interesting. And I, and it's in part potentially um, because part of the Gres assessment um, speaks specifically to management of, um, of the fund. Uh, I know in the early days of, of Gresb, a lot of the interest, um, well, investors came together and funded the creation of Gresb back in 2009, sorry, 2009. Um, some of those investors using Gresb did so because they understood the long-term um, risks associated with ESG performance, and they wanted a way to better understand those. But others, other investors simply saw ESG performance as a bit of a proxy for good management. Like if you're if you're doing right. a good job managing these risks and opportunities, you're probably doing a good job managing everything. Um, so I heard someone refer to it as night vision goggles, where you yes. can see within your your systems and find the opportunities where you can uh, address them. So yes, and and ensure that you're taking a standardized approach throughout your portfolio because what's very common um, in the real estate world is is maybe a fund manager 
you know, they they celebrate and talk highly and, and a lot about a couple of their landmark properties um, in their portfolio. But those landmark properties don't really say anything about the entire portfolio. Like you could have uh, not really great properties that you're um, that you're not right. talking as much about. Um, so um, the yes, but the we just released we just announced a partnership with Gresb at the end of last year, which I'm quite excited about. Um, which is going to allow us to work together to really elevate social sustainability performance uh, within the real estate industry, utilizing existing data that's already being gathered by the Gres Real Estate Assessment. Um, so there, uh, if we've we've also conducted an alignment exercise, align looking at the alignment between the Well Standard and the Gres Real Estate Assessment, we've got about forty percent alignment between the two, uh, which is an indi indication of how many social indicators are in the Gres Real Estate Assessment. Um, some of the most right. robust of those social indicators do stem from the Gresb Health and Wellbeing module, which uh, which ran as a voluntary standalone thing from 2015 to 2019 that I was involved in. Um, and now that those indicators are in the Gresb Real Estate Assessment, it's it's not easy for the average um, Gresb participant or the Gresb investor member to use um, Gresb results as they are currently communicated to understand social performance specifically. And so that's what we're going to be working on together, uh, really leveraging IWBI uh, and our insight on the um, aspects of, of health and social performance that matter most um, and kind of helping provide that expertise on what those criteria should be. And then on the Gres side, leveraging the the data that they're already collecting and creating a new lens of um, social sustainability performance that allows investors to gain more insight into what that performance is. Also, another aspect of this will be um, developing engagement tools that really guide that engagement process between the investor and the fund manager around social issues. I think while there's been increased understanding that and awareness of of uh, the importance of of social performance and um, its ability to be a source of potential risk and also opportunity. There is growing understanding of that, but there's not yet uh, a widespread understanding of okay, well then how do we what do we do about it? Um, and what are the most important things to be addressing? Uh, and especially on the investor side, which metrics, which specific metrics should they be paying most attention to? And if you look at what Gros will do versus what the um, well um, efforts you guys have underway are doing you have what you can do at a portfolio level and you guys actually can provide the look at what you can do at a building level to increase the sustainability of that building uh literally step by step but something which is i think a lot of portfolio managers are looking for uh whether it be energy efficiency or you know uh better lighting and windows or uh you know i can't, can't really change location but can you help drive uh, public transportation etc um if you look at this initiative in um, the flow of the larger efforts that are happening, you know, the European standards are coming out on ESG, SEC's efforts and Treasury's efforts. What does the world look like in 2030 when all of these things really have taken taken uh, taken hold and investors are able to um, really look at where they are putting their dollars? Like how, are, how are this is helping to educate both investors and also I think the demand of folks looking at folks? Yeah, well, I hope that in 2030, we're um, in a state of the market where there's truly an integrated approach being taken to environmental and social issues side by side. Um, and that it's not seen as a separate or an add-on thing to do the social issues, but it's actually 
just the way that the way that good high performing funds are managed or the way that good high performing buildings are managed is is simply by addressing environmental and social issues um hand in hand with one another um we've been really excited about the uh about mexico's uh sustainable taxon taxonomy being the first to actually address both environmental and social goals alongside one another in the same taxonomy mm. um of course learning from and building off of the EU's um, progress on uh, doing that separately for environmental and social issues. Um, but I think that that's the direction that we're that we're headed. Um, and and also making social issues more tangible. Uh, one of the things that I observed in my work with Gresb on the health and well-being module was that, as we talked about previously, health had emerged as an organic trend and interest within the real estate industry, but it was really more of a bottom-up trend. Um, real estate companies were the ones starting to compete with one another on health. The upstream investor didn't really wasn't paying attention to that and wasn't really asking for information on health performance or social performance. I think that's in part because they're further removed from the impact. Like it's easier for a fund manager or an asset manager to know that if I've got um, you know, if I'm positioned in a place with better walkability, I've got more daylight in my space, um, better access to green space, it's going to rent easier than one that doesn't have those yeah. those factors. And the fund manager can see that easier than the investor can. Um, but we're making progress towards kind of daylighting that interaction um, and enabling that investor engagement, that top-down engagement in a way that'll hopefully drive additional capital to those, you know, better for people assets um similarly the i think the there's rise... also a false narrative sorry there's a false no, narrative that you're sacrificing returns to have more sustainable and i think that's a false narrative i think the data that you guys are providing uh and will continue to provide will show folks that you know you actually in many cases can do better uh by investing in this uh, holistic approach uh, but there's still a, a pretty antiquated approach of you know we're going to make these environmental efforts as, at, a, at a premium and a cost us as investors which is not true at all Absolutely. And I've recently realized that um, with the positioning of social issues, uh, we have uh, kind of followed the path of environmental issues and, and, and clung on to frames like such as systemic risk and, and talking about how social issues um, expose investors to systemic risk and that they need to be addressed just like environmental issues. And that's true. I think one of the largest ones would be rising inequality um, is, is a massive uh, risk from a financial perspective, um, which has been well documented. That said, there are there are many ways in which social issues actually provide more short-term risk and opportunity as well. And you might be able to actually balance out some of the, um, if you're if you're achieving and, and pursuing environmental performance in a way that might take longer to see the impact that you want to see, um, there are really short-term ways that social that the social lens adds value. And we do excitingly um, have research to back that up in terms of increased um, uh, in increased asset value by square foot, increased better leasing terms, uh, and, and things like that. So I'm I'm hopeful that right. that plus the rise of uh, sustainable finance uh, will continue to drive additional investment into um, into places that perform better for people. So we've got we've got as you said, like we've got that very well defined with um, strategies within the well building standard in terms of how to make places better, uh, and then pairing that with the trends that are driving additional capital into those sorts of places um, hopefully will lead to us making uh, a good amount of progress over the next couple of years um, and really being able to take that 
fully yeah. integrated holistic approach to both environmental and social issues. Well, I love it. Thank you so much for the leadership you guys continue to show on this. And uh, if folks want to learn more, uh, where, where should they go? Um, yes. So um, the um, IWI website, um, which is, well, I should actually confirm, uh, wellcertified.com. Um, we've got actually a whole section of our website that is uh, talks about our efforts within ESG and sustainable finance, um, also talks about our investing in health initiative. Um, and I actually just, we at the end of last year, just released a new um, standalone resource specifically on well and social sustainability. Um, and so that goes through how the rating system can be used to, to support um, a social sustainability strategy. Um, and so that would be the best place. We also have a, a global event series that we're kicking off this year. So we've got um, our conference in California in the spring and then also events around the world. So encourage uh, folks to check those out as well. Awesome. And if you can go back to yourself on 6th Street uh, in Austin when you're graduating from UT and could sit down and have a beer, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Uh, I think I would uh, tell myself not to worry so much about having everything all planned out. I was very envious of my friends that were going to law school or had an MBA mm -hmm. and were just getting a standard job. Um, but yeah, I would tell myself just to be patient and be confident that something even better will open up for you. And actually, the circuitous path is sometimes the better one. I agree with that. I was an elementary education major, so I agree with that 100%. So. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for, for joining us. I'd love to hear Chris Pike's name uh, raised. I haven't heard his name in a long time. Uh, thank you for the leadership that you guys continue to show. Thanks to Bill McHugh for helping to set this up. And our, our producer, Colleen Young, as always, you can get more uh, episodes at cleancapital.com. And Kelly, I hope we can have you back some of the time to talk about the continued progress. Yes, would love to come back. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for listening. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Mm -hmm.